brothers and sisters. It's good to be with you again. I'm trying to think back when we were last here, and I didn't check before I came, but I'm thinking it was two years ago before COVID took, took off. I think so. Just think of all that's happened in the last two years. Isn't that amazing? Who would have thought? So um, this morning at first, I was trying to figure out what was this thing you did last night? I couldn't quite figure out. You're thanking God for bringing you safely home, but from where? And then eventually I figured out what you had done, and I want to commend you for that. That is wonderful. Um, (coughs) (coughs) May God bless those seeds of kindness and words of truth that you would have shared compassion with people last night. You just never know where that may go. So uh, keep, keep being active in reaching out and sharing your faith with others. So this morning, <clears throat> I'd like to share, uh, let's see, how many people here are in school from grades one up, up from there? Would you raise your hands, all the people that are going to school? Okay. I'm sure one of your favorite subjects is history, right? Or maybe it isn't. Okay, all those dates and all those people back then. <clears throat> but um, you know there's, there is real value in learning what happened from the past <clears throat> so that we can plot our way going forward. We can learn from people in the past. Someone has said like this, he who does not learn from the mistakes of history is doomed to repeat them. Now, Christianity is a religion that is deeply rooted in history. It values history. Well, look at it. We have it right in our hands. And it believes that God reveals himself in history and his, himself in charge of history. So this morning, I would like to talk to us a bit from Scripture about a cloud of witnesses, and then I'd like to share a little bit about some of our core values as Anabaptists. Who are we? And where did we come from? And then tell a few stories, uh, some of my favorite stories about early Anabaptists. So when we first went to Central America, I still had a little bit of embarrassment about the M word. Have you ever heard of the word M word, Mennonite? Have you heard of that? Um, now, I'd, I'd gotten rid of some of that by taking a course with uh, Walter Beachy on Anabaptist history and theology. That really helped. And you know, all of us as churches go through seasons of struggle, and sometimes the church disappoints us. And, but, and so I'm the son of a pastor, and he was called to shepherd or pastor churches throughout his life journey that were either in decline or in conflict. And so that really impacted our family. I'm the oldest of seven children. None of my siblings go to church. But you know that course, what it did was it helped to paint a bigger picture about who we are, where we've come from, and what we believe to help put our own local church struggles at that time into a bigger picture. And that is what, that course, plus God's work in my life, is what kept me in the Anabaptist faith. I was ready to chuck it out the window. 
But when we were in Central America, there was something else that those new believers, first-generation Christians, did for me personally that I'd like to pass on to you. I did not say the M word to them. I just started teaching the new believers what the Bible says, what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, and their lives begin to change. And people, their relatives and friends would ask them, well, so what religion are you? And they say, well, we don't know. We think it's Menonitas. That's Spanish for Mennonite. But they said, we, we really don't know what that is. I hadn't told them, right? There were already a few Mennonite churches in Nicaragua, and so they must have picked it up that way. So <clears throat> I said, well, what did you tell them? They said, well, we told them <coughs> Menonitas, the first part of that word, menos. They said, in Spanish, menos means less than, so we told them that means less of the world. And the last part, tas, well, there's a word in Spanish, mas, which means more than. So we told them menonitas means less of the world and more of Christ, but we really don't know what it means. What is it? And so then I told them what it meant to be Mennonite and a little bit about our history. I want to share some of that with you this morning. So let's go to... First, the value of looking back, of seeing history. So go with me in your Bibles. Do you have your Bibles? Romans 15. <clears throat> so while you're looking there, Romans 14 and 15, Paul is writing to a church that has some struggles because there are differences within the church. Did you need to be vegetarian or could you eat meat? Could you, did you need to have a special days that you set aside for worshiping God, or was every day equally holy? And they had these, these difficulties among them, and so Paul writes to them, and he refers to the past. So look in Romans 15, chapter, uh, chapter 15, verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written... The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So notice that the purpose of Scripture, the things that were written before, at this time, the New Testament, when Paul wrote this, the New Testament wasn't brought together yet. So he was referring to the Old Testament. He said, the purpose of these things that were written before, in verse 4, so that we will learn, second, so that we will have patience, Third, so that we may have comfort, it comforts us to read from the Scriptures, the Old Testament, and where do you go to receive comfort? You go to the Psalms, right? And so that we may have hope, because we see God at work in His people, even in the midst of their failures. And then in, in verse uh, 5, so that you'll be like-minded, and so that together you will glorify God. 
This is the purpose of Scripture, to help us so that we, together in the midst of our differences, we may find hope and have patience and comfort. In the midst of our liberty, we may also work together for unity and thus glorify God. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, another purpose for the Old Testament scriptures and for learning from history. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is a chapter in which Paul discusses the right of Christian leaders and missionaries, Christian workers, to be supported by the congregations so that they have time for Bible study and prayer and ministry and so on. But in chapter 9, verses 8 through 11, again, learning from history, Paul writes, Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law also say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? And so forth. So Paul reaches back to the Old Testament law. And in that law, Moses gave this law. When a cow, an ox, or a donkey, when they make it walk around on top of the harvested stalks of wheat to thresh out the kernels, he said, don't put a muzzle over the nose of the ox or the donkey. Let them eat while they're working. And then he says, now I want you to learn from this so that you will support your leaders adequately as they care for you and shepherd you. So here we have another purpose of Old Testament law. It's to inform New Testament church life and practice. And this is repeated also in 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Timothy 5, where he re, re, uh, repeats this same law, mentions it again in support of Christian leaders. And he says, I'm writing this to you so that you will know how you should uh, behave in the household of God, in the family of God, just in case I'm delayed in coming to you. So he reaches back to the Old Testament law and experience and brings forward to inform the life of the church. Go with, and by the way, in, uh, we were in Israel when I saw this, and actually also in North Africa, where they actually did have animals. They didn't have a combine, right? You have the big green that nothing runs like a deer, or maybe the big red, or whatever it is that you like. But there, they had an ox or a donkey walking on the straw to thresh out the wheat. And I noticed they had a muzzle on the nose of the animal, exactly what the Bible says you shouldn't do. They were not learning from Old Testament law. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Here is another passage that talks to us about learning from the Old Testament, from history, and if you don't, you're going to fall into some of the same trouble that they fell into thousands of years ago. So let's learn from them. Chapter 10, verse 5. But with most of them, that's the Israelites, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Verse 6. Now these things became our examples 
to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Talking about the golden calf, right? Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell, or they died. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents, those poisonous snakes that bit them. Verse 10, nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. <clears throat> now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come, or from our, for our learning. Verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So what's the purpose for Old Testament history? so that we can learn from the mistakes, the errors, the disasters that befell them, so that we don't go through the same trouble and the same failures. For example, it says they lusted. Well, what were they lusting for? Meat. They wanted meat. Remember how God brought all those quails, and they ate lots of it until it came out of their noses. And then there was a plague, a great plague, and many of them got sick and died. The reference to idolatry, dancing around that golden calf. And then Moses called up, who's on the, the Lord's side? And they went with him, and 3,000 people were killed who were involved, 3,000 men who were involved in that idolatry. The immorality that he's referencing was the counsel that Balaam gave Balak, and they sent women to seduce the Israelite men, and they fell into sin, and God sent a plague, and over 20,000 people, here it says 20, 23,000 people fell in one day. Back in Numbers, it said that 24,000 died, so maybe several, another thousand died the next day. I'm not sure how that all worked. Imagine 24,000. That's probably more than live in the town of Washington or at least Montgomery. I don't know what the town... Does anyone know the population of Mont uh, Washington? Okay, so like two Washingtons, right? In one day. Now, that would get your attention, wouldn't it? And it was through immorality. And by the way, even today, this is a tremendous temptation with that little object in our pocket, right? Pornography. Tremendous danger for people, the pornography. <clears throat> and then and notice that in, uh, uh, he says, and some of them tested Christ. How was that? Well, they were complaining about no water. And then on another occasion, they complained about the manna. And then God sent the fiery, venomous, poisonous snakes to bite them. And so then he instructed Moses to put a bronze snake on a pole, and whoever would look at it would be saved from the venomous bite. And by the way, even today, you notice with 
like medical symbol. It has a pole with a snake curled around it, referring back to that event. And then he says, and don't complain. Some of them complained. Do people in Davis County complain? Maybe not, right? Because things are going so well. He says, watch out for complaining. And the complaining, when did that happen? Well, several occasions, two of which I've met, mentioned already. But another complaining occasion was when the 12 spies went and spied out the land. And then 10 gave a negative report about the land. They were complaining about it. The two, Joshua and Caleb, said, no, we can go up and take it. God's promises are true. We can, eat, we can do it. And then because they complained, they convinced the whole company of the Israelites. And for 40 years, there was a 40-year delay until all that generation died in the desert. That was the result of complaining. And then evidently another sin that he's talking about in verse 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Beware of self-confidence, being confident in yourself. And that happened after God said, I will not let you go into the promised land because of this evil report, and you're complaining and weeping, the next day, some of them said, we will go up. And Moses said, don't go. No, they said, but we will go. And they were beat up by the people in the land, and they came back defeated. They were self-confident. And then in verse 14, he concludes that by saying, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Evidently, these sins of lusting, idolatry, immorality, testing Christ, complaining, and self-confidence, evidently these sins reveal idols in the heart. Idolatry. And the, and the tests and trials of life are designed by God to bring that out into the open so that we will confess our sins and find forgiveness and transformation. Thank God for that promise in verse 13. No temptation will come that is too difficult, but he'll give us a way out. So we learn from history, seeing the bumps and troubles and tumbles of God's people in the past so that we don't commit the same sins that they did. Let's go now to um, Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> While you're turning there, Try to imagine if you only had the New Testament and you did not have the Old Testament. How much of the New Testament would you have difficulty understanding because of not knowing the Old Testament and what he's talking about? Here in Hebrews chapter 11, you have the whole chapter talking about Old Testament heroes. We can call it God's Hall of Faith rather than the Hall of Fame. As he lists a number of them and their expressions of faith, then in verse 32, I'd like to pick up and leave, read from there. Again, what is the value of looking back? Hebrews 11:32. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, 
obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, that would be Samson, right? Quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens or the foreigners. Women received their dead, raised back to life again. We'll pause there. Remember that Shunammite woman and Elijah or Elisha raised her son from the dead. That would be one of the people he's referring to. Here we have encouragement by looking at people from history who were victorious, we could say. All of these great victories that they were able to accomplish through faith. But there's another list here yet. And these are the ones who appeared to be defeated. Listen to their sorrows and troubles. Verse 35, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. That's a reference perhaps uh, to tradition that Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, was uh, with a saw, they cut him in half. Were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. So we're encouraged by observing people in history who seemingly were defeated. But continuing the reading, all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not, did not receive the promise God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. They were looking forward to something better. And when we look backward at those people, it reminds us to look forward to something better. Continue reading. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all of these people mentioned in chapter 11, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So looking back helps us to purify ourselves. Think about those sins into which the Israelites fell. It helps us to look forward with hope. It helps us to lay aside the weights and sins that can ensnare us. Looking back helps us to run with endurance. Young people, I encourage you, read the stories of early Anabaptist martyrs. You will be so encouraged. There's a lady from Africa who has been in our church for years. She's a first-generation Christian and a first-generation Anabaptist. And we loaned her the book, Not Regina. And she read that and she said, this is This is amazing. All of our young people should read this book. <laughs> she really enjoyed that story of that young lady among the early Anabaptists. 
So looking back can give us endurance as we look at the great cloud of witnesses, and then we look at the great example, Jesus. And that helps us not to become weary and discouraged in our souls. When we go through trouble and disappointment and trials and temptations and disappointments, the tendency is for us to become discouraged and to give, it, give up. Just chuck it out the window. But he says, don't. Look back at the great cloud. Look forward to the great example and be encouraged to persevere, to endure. So let's learn from them, shall we? Now, I'd like to go next to our core values as Anabaptists or as Mennonites. Anabaptist actually means rebaptizer. So it was a disrespectful word. It was a word designed to make fun of them. You were baptized, they said, as babies in the Catholic Church, the Holy Catholic Church. You do not need to be rebaptized. They said that first baptism was not a baptism. It was just getting a little bit wet. And so then they said, oh, you want to be baptized? Then we'll put you in the river and drown you. If that's what you want, we'll give you more water. So this happened like almost 500 years ago. In three more years, the Anabaptist movement will be 500 years old. Many of us do not know what we believe and why we believe it and where we came from and what it's all about. And that's a shame. We really need to know who we are and why those people were willing to be burned and drowned and tortured. For what? Why? I read the book uh, written by a Reformed church um, historian, Leonard Birdwin. The title is The Reformers and Their Stepchildren. The stepchildren refer to the Anabaptists. And he made this comment. The freedom that we have in this country as a result of the separation of church and state came directly from the Anabaptists. Did you know that? Most people don't. And the fact that there are all kinds of churches in this country, Baptist and Nazarene and Pentecostal and Charismatic and Community Bible and so on, those are believers' church churches that practice believers' baptism, and that came directly out of the Anabaptist movement. Now, what are the core values of the Anabaptist movement? Let's make the picture. Let's say, let's say that Crossroads is this big in the picture. Let's make it a bigger picture. So I have six words for you if you're taking notes, just to write down those six key words that enshrine the core values of Anabaptism. Now, some people think, well, Mennonites, that's something put on the lady's head, and, and that's what it is. Well, yes, although there are other groups in the world that do that as well. Thank God for them. But that grows out of a deeper value. And what are they? Well, first, the first word is discipleship. So those early Anabaptists said, the essence of Christianity is that we are disciples, followers of Jesus, and that as followers of Jesus, our lives should be patterned after his example and teachings. They called it walking in the resurrection. 
It's not enough to agree to certain theological content. We must be transformed disciples. So one of the early Anabaptists, Hans Denk, said, and I like this quote, we should see it on the walls of more Anabaptist homes. You rarely see it. It goes like this. He knows Christ truly who follows him daily in life. Do any of you have that motto in your home? Maybe some of you woodworkers can make it, right? And see if you could hang one up in each of the homes of, of Crossroads. He knows Christ truly who follows him daily in life. In other words, it's not enough to say you're a Christian. You need to be one. You need to act like one. You need to follow Jesus and act like him in order to say that you are truly a Christian. The second key word that expresses a core value is brotherhood. And I heard one of you brothers mentioning in our Sunday school class, community. Nobody, all alone by himself, is an adequate leader for everybody. Brotherhood. The church is a brotherhood. And so within this core value, that means church membership should be voluntary. No one is forced or pressured to become a member. It should follow conversion and repentance with surrender to Christ as Lord. There should be a believer's baptism, not a baby baptism, a believer's baptism with an expression of commitment to following Jesus and living a holy life, which means separation from the world, and it means brotherhood. It also means that when people choose to live an unholy life as a member, they will be excluded from the church, which means excommunication. And so in the Catholic Church, in the, in the Middle Ages, their method of getting rid of the unbeliever was putting him to death. The Anabaptists said, no, we should not put the unbeliever to death. We should not kill the atheist. We exclude him from the members, membership of the local church. And then we try to win him back to Christ again. The third core word, the third key word of a core uh, value is non-resistance. You've heard that, right? Non-resistance. The positive way to say that is suffering love. Suffering love. The ethic of love and non-resistance, we will not fight and shed another man's blood. Menno Simon said, there are those who think shedding another man's blood is well, well nigh like shedding the blood of a swine, of a pig, of equal value. But no, we will not participate in violence and the taking of human life. Now, these three first ones come from Harold Bender's little booklet called The Anabaptist Vision. And it's become sort of like a little classic in, in the Anabaptist, explaining the Anabaptist values. But there are three more that I've gathered from other sources that I think really should be included in that little booklet. But Harold Bender has gone on to be with the Lord, so he can't include it anymore. Here's the next one, the Great Commission, the Great Commission. Those early Anabaptists had a compelling vision for the Great Commission, just like 
you as leaders here are trying to instill that in your DNA as a church. Those early Anabaptists talked the gospel as well as walked it. Now, their heirs, current-day Anabaptists, will sometimes say, I just show the gospel by my life. The problem is none of us are that good. The other problem is sinners don't understand the gospel just by watching Christians. They'll say, oh, that's because you were born in a Christian family. Oh, that's your culture. No, it's because of the gospel. So those early Anabaptists, everywhere they went, they talked so much so. Ladies, if we would transport you back 500 years and there would be market day in Montgomery, the authorities would come to you to your home and chain you in your own home so you wouldn't go to market on market day. Why? What do ladies do when they go to market? Well, they talk with other ladies, right? And when their hearts are full of Jesus, what do they talk about? The best price is down at the next vendor? No, they talk about Jesus, right? And then maybe after that, they'll talk about that good deal down there too. The uh, compelling vision for the Great Commission. In fact, I read this in one book. If you could go to Europe today, and if you could go and research the court records of the trials in the courthouses of those early Anabaptists, and you would read those records, there is one passage that those Anabaptists on trial for their lives repeated more than any other passage. It was Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go and make disciples of all nations baptize and teach them. I would have thought they would say, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with... No, they talked about the Great Commission because that was so deep within them and of such great concern to them. Number five, Christ-centered. Christ-centered. And with this core value, the early Anabaptist had a Christ-centered view of the Bible. They read the Bible through the glasses of Jesus Christ. How did he interpret the Old Testament? How did he apply it? The Old Testament, he said, looked forward to and was fulfilled in Christ. In the New Testament, we look back to him and see how he applies it in our lives today. A Christ-centered approach to Scripture. Here's just an illustration. You know, there's much about uh, the Baptists that I appreciate, especially their emphasis on soul winning, winning souls. But here is a distinction between Baptists and Anabaptists. Now, we're not anti-Baptists. We're Anabaptists, right? So here's how it works. And it's very logical. You answer for me. David was a man after God's own heart. True or false? true. The Bible says so. David was a man of war, true or false. But since he was a man after God's own heart, we also may participate in the military and be men and women after God's own heart. Wait a minute. How did you get there, Gary? Well, we often go to Matthew 5, right? You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and what else? Hate your enemy. 
What comes next? But I say unto you, love your enemies. See, that's looking at Scripture through the lens of Jesus. That's the difference. That's all the difference. That's the big difference. So a Christ-centered approach to Scripture, and then one more, and the word is biblicism, biblicism. What that means is we go back to the Bible. If the Bible says it with God's help and grace, we believe we should do it, not make excuses for it. Do we do it perfectly? God knows, and we all know we don't. But we don't feel comfortable with that. We want to live more like Jesus. We want to live more like the early church. We want to put it in practice. We ask him to forgive us and to help us put it in practice. So let's go back and review the six key words enshrining the core values of the Anabaptist movement. The first one was discipleship. Second is brotherhood. Third is non-resistance or suffering love. Fourth is the Great Commission. Fifth is, pardon me? I still didn't catch it. Yes, a Christ-centered view of Scripture. The fancy word is hermeneutic. No, it's not talking about Herman, whose last name is Nudic. Hermeneutics means the way you interpret Scripture, right? And the sixth one is Biblicism, back to the Bible. What does the Bible say? All right, so now it's story time. Okay, here are some of my favorite stories. Here's one. Uh, Felix Mons was one of the first three men, uh, pioneers, Felix Mons, Conrad Grebel, and George Blaurock. So, well, let me tell you about George Blaurock, even though this is not a story to imitate. <laughs> but I liked his... Chutzpah, that's Hebrew for his grit and his boldness. His last name means blue coat. So he went into the Catholic church, and he went up to the priest when he was preaching and said, God told me that he wants me to preach today. And the priest said, the police will take care of you. And they came and arrested him and took him away. But anyway, Felix Mons, young man, you know, those, those first uh, Anabaptists, they were young people in their 20s. George Blaurock may have been in his 30s, but Felix Mons was arrested and taken to the river Limat to be drowned. They said, you want water? We're going to baptize you again. His mother was there watching from the bank as they took him in a boat out in the river, and they had him crouch down and bend his knees and put a pole through there and had his hands uh, tied so that he couldn't straighten up. And his mother was standing on the riverbank encouraging him, don't give up, Felix, don't give up. And they threw him overboard and drowned him for his faith in Christ. And his belief, along with ours, that religion should be a matter of personal choice, and not by pressure of pope and priest and pastor and parents and kings, but by your own free will. Well, let's take this one. Two years after the beginning 
of the Anabaptist movement. So now that puts us at 1527, which is just a scant 30 and change years after Columbus discovered America. So there were 60 Anabaptist leaders got together. They called it, they called it the Missionary Synod or the Missionary Conference. And their purpose for getting together these 60 leaders was to plot, to plan for the evangelization of the whole of Europe. Who would go to Prussia? Who would go wherever? And they actually paired people up two by two. Who would go where? <clears throat> and then they disbanded. And also at that meeting, they discussed what they had heard about the discovery of red men in America, the American Indians. So they dispersed, they went their various ways, and within two years, all of those men, except two or three, had been martyred. So then they changed the name. The name was changed from the Missionary Conference to the Martyrs Conference. But just see, that was within two years of the first baptisms of Anabaptists. They were already thinking about how the whole of Europe should be evangelized. At that time, Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin, he came a little bit later, and Martin Luther, they had no vision for missions, none. Why? Because they assumed that the whole of Europe had already been Christianized. Everybody had been baptized as babies, so there was no mission work to do. And they had no awareness of the peoples in other parts of the world who were yet unevangelized, the missionary synod. Next story, Michael Sattler. He's one of my heroes. Michael Sattler was a young man who was a monk, uh, a single young man in a monastery. And he uh, discovered the gospel and became an Anabaptist, left the monastery, and began to preach and to pastor. He actually, it is thought, was the prime shaker and mover for the uh, writing of the first confession of faith called the Schleitheim Confession of Faith. Seven points that they agreed on as a new movement. And you can still read that confession to this day. Have any of you read the Schleitheim Confession of Faith? Okay, you need to check it out and see what they agreed on. There was a young lady named Margarita who was a nun, a Catholic nun, and then she came to faith as well and decided to leave the um, monastery. And they met and they married. Michael Sattler was very used of the Lord among the early Anabaptists. He was persecuted and imprisoned. Once in a while, they would bring Margaretha to him to see if that would help him to give up his faith so he could be released. He refused to recant or to give up his faith, and so he was put on trial. And there were a number of serious charges against him. One of them was that he didn't have respect for the Virgin Mary. Another, he didn't have respect for the, the Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, and that he believed that it didn't actually turn into the literal blood and flesh of Jesus. But the most serious charge against him was what he said about the Turks. Now, the Turkish Muslims, the Ottoman Empire, 
was coming toward Europe, and there were deep fears about the possibility of Europe being conquered by the Muslims and being changed into a Muslim empire. And so they asked him if it was true that he said that he would fight on the side of the Turks. That'd be kind of like saying now, if the Russians would come here, I think I would fight on the side of the Russians. So it's a very serious thing. And then this is what he said. He says, what I said was, if I would fight, I would choose to fight on the side of the Turks because they are Turks after the flesh and know no better. But you who call yourselves Christians are Turks after the spirit. And one of the guards said, the hangman will debate with you. And so they condemned him to death by burning. And on the way to the to fire, that they would tear out pieces of his skin with red-hot tongs. On his way to the fire, they cut out his tongue so that he wouldn't preach. But before they did, Margaretha was brought there to watch. And she had to go along and watch the burning. But he told his wife, he said, if the grace of God is sufficient to keep me faithful. When the fire burns the ropes off my hands, I will raise my hand in a sign of victory. So they took him out to burn. They did what they had to do. Because of the younger audience, I don't want to say too many details. They put him there on the pile of firewood, tied him there to a pole, and she has to stand and watch and wonder and as the smoke billows upward, all of a sudden, guess what she sees in the smoke? God kept him faithful to the very end. There's a book about him. It's called Pilgrim of Flame. Have any of you read that book, Pilgrim of Flame? It's his story. You ought to get it and read it. It's very inspiring. He is one of my heroes. And then later, because she wouldn't give up her faith, they sentenced her to death by drowning. And that's how they were just young people in their upper 20s or lower 30s. Or here is the story about Dirk Willems. Dirk Willems was an Anabaptist who was running for his life in the wintertime in Holland, I think it was. And there was a skiff of ice across the pond or the river, I don't know, maybe a pond. And he went running across. He was a smaller man. He was being chased by some Anabaptist hunters who were trying to catch him so that he could be killed. And he could run across because he was light enough, but the one who was pursuing him was heavier, and he got out across the ice, and the ice broke, and he fell through. And of course, it's the dead of winter. It's very, very cold. And so what did Dirk do? If you were Dirk, what would you do? I think I'd run faster yet and get away from there. Well, I had my chance and say that was God's judgment on that guy. No, you know what he did? He turned around and helped him get out and get safely to the land. On the other side, there were two authorities calling out to the chaser, arrest him, arrest him. But he didn't want to. But they threatened him, if you don't arrest him, we'll do to you what we would do to Dirk. So he arrested him, and Dirk was sentenced to death as a martyr. Well, let's, a couple of short stories about Menno Simons. Now, Menno Simons was a Catholic priest. 
He had a brother who became Anabaptist, and he heard about his brother's death, and it troubled him. Why would he be willing to die for that? And so he began, instead of partying and drinking along with the other priests, he began to read the New Testament, and it brought conviction to him, and he was converted. He did not immediately leave the priesthood. He continued serving as a priest, but it began to trouble him about baptizing infants, about the Lord's Supper, saying that it actually changed into the body and flesh of the Lord and, he, and blood of the Lord. And so he voluntarily left the priesthood and then became very used of the Lord uh, within the Anabaptist churches to help bring more stability and to avoid the extremes. His name was placed on the movement as a sign of derision, of making fun of them. Oh, you are menists. You are Mennonites. They, never, they didn't call themselves that. They called themselves brothers or sisters. But since there were more of the enemies than there were of the movement, that name stuck. And that's why we still have Mennonite today, even though we would often prefer to have a different name than have a man's name. Well, the Lutherans also have a man's name too, right, for Luther. So it's not uh, totally... Uh, unique to the Anabaptists, but it was a derogatory word. So one day, um, well, there was a price on Menno's head, and uh, that there would be a certain amount of gold given for anyone who gave information that led to his capture or that delivered him even dead to the authorities. So he always had to move around. He actually died a natural death in his mid-60s. But before that, one time, uh, he was, he, at night, he was fleeing and came to a river. It was the dead of night. It was dark. There was a law that no one was to assist him in any way, not even in giving a glass of water, or they would be punished as well. He came to the river. There was a man who had a, a boat that was used to ferry people across the river, and the man gave him a ride across the river secretly that night. Two years later, the authorities discovered that that man had given him a ride, and they punished him. They killed him. On another occasion, uh, Menno was riding on a coach, you know, like a, remember the stagecoaches? Kind of like a, a big buggy. He was riding on the outside on the back. The coach was stopped. The authorities asked, is Menno Simons inside the coach? Menno looked inside. He says, no, he's not in there. And then the coach was left to go on. But near the end of his life, Menno wrote a letter to his wife in which he lamented that they had never been able to live at one address for more than six months at a time. They always had to be on the move so that the authorities wouldn't catch up with them. Do you know how uh, the authorities found a way to discover who was Anabaptist? You see, you couldn't always tell by looking if somebody was Anabaptist or not, because even back then, the non-Mennonite ladies would wear something on their heads. And the Anabaptists, they, they looked like any ordinary peasant without all of the finery of jewelry and of uh, expensive clothes. So how are they going to tell if that person's an Anabaptist? Well, they actually had people who were designated Anabaptist hunters. 
They would go out looking for them. And here's what they discovered. If they met somebody and suspected that they could be Anabaptists, they would just ask them, do you swear to be loyal to the king? And if the person said, I'll be loyal, but I can't swear, they'd say, grab him. He's Anabaptist. Why? Jesus said, you have heard of times past that you shall fulfill your oath. But now I say to you, continue, let your, and your, nay be nay, anything else beyond this comes from the evil one. So that's how they found, they found a way to capture Anabaptists. Would you be willing to be captured, allow yourself to be captured, just because you refuse to swear an oath? Wouldn't it be tempting to swear and then later ask God for forgiveness? But they refused to. In fact, one of the early reformers said of the Anabaptists, their lives are so holy and they're so honest and good you would think that they were real Christians, but that's what the devil does to de make the deception all the greater. So, one more yet. Two, actually. Well, I mentioned about the ladies being chained in their homes on the market days. But one more. A pastor was sleeping at night in his home. Um, maybe it was Holland, I'm not sure, but they had thatch roofs. They would take, uh, like, corn leaves or other materials like that, and make a roof to shed the water. And so while he and his wife are sleeping that night, in the middle of the night, the pastor wakes up. He hears some noise on the roof, and he wonders, what is going on? Somebody is up on the roof. Well, there are a couple of guys up on the roof, and they were taking his roof apart. And soon he could see, he could see the stars. So he wakes up his wife, and he says, wife, get breakfast ready. For these men. They're going to be hungry when they get all of that done. So he went out and he waited until they got done. When they came down off the roof, he says, men, you must be very hungry. You must have worked. You've worked very hard tonight. My wife has prepared breakfast for you. Please come in and eat breakfast. So they came in and ate breakfast. And of course, they didn't converse very much, kind of ashamed, embarrassed. And when they got done eating breakfast, they went out and they put the materials back up on the roof, assembled the roof back together and left. What was he doing? He was overcoming evil with good. Brothers and sisters, this is the heritage that, we, that has come down to us. It is not through any goodness of our own. This has been given to us. Anyone who chooses to embrace this faith, born into it or not, enjoys the same heritage. <clears throat> I'm an Anabaptist both by birth and by choice. But there are many among us who did not, were not born into an Anabaptist home, but it's by their choice. And we also share together in this heritage. So I want to conclude with one little story yet from our own life. Uh, early in our time in New York, back in uh, 1987, I was looking for an apartment for a couple who were coming to live and work in the city among international students. And so um, I was riding with a, a real estate agent to go look at an apartment. And in our ride, riding together, I started talking with him about Jesus. And he got very upset. He said, in that name, they killed my ancestors. 
Turns out he was Jewish, right? And it just popped out. I said, sir, in that name, they killed my ancestors too. He said, who are you? I said, they call us Mennonites. Both the Catholics and the Protestants killed our ancestors. And you can choose either to forgive or to be bitter. He didn't want to talk anymore. But look at this amazing heritage that has been given to us. When we live and work among Muslims and among Jews especially, we have this amazing treasure that for 500 years we are part of a Christian movement that has said we will not kill. We prefer to die rather than to send somebody else to hell. That is the heritage that has been given to us. So, brothers and sisters, I encourage you, look back. Look back at the amazing cloud of witnesses that are watching. Look forward to the great example, Jesus. Are you looking at him? Are you watching him? Are you learning from him? Are you asking to become like him? He will comfort you. He will encourage you. He will strengthen you. He will transform you. He will use you as you focus on him. And he will make you more like himself as we look to him. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the amazing heritage of Christians down through these 2,000 years of history who have taken their stand for you. We thank you for the lessons we can learn from the Old Testament, the people who were tempted, who suffered, some who died, uh, were punished. We can learn from their experiences. For those, uh, from those who were faithful to you, we can, re we can gain new strength and encouragement. Father, we think of our own heritage as descendants of the early Anabaptists and what they went through. I pray, Father, that you awaken, awaken in all of us an appreciation for history, especially for Christian history and for Anabaptist history, to learn the lessons from those who have gone before us. But most of all, help us focus on Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, that great example who has gone before us so that we will not become weary and discouraged and give up. We want to be more like you, Lord Jesus. We want to walk like you daily in life and so know you truly. I pray for this congregation, whatever season of life that they are in, <coughs> as a church that you'll bless and encourage them, you will strengthen them, and you will help them learn vibrant, vital lessons, valuable lessons from the people of the past to strengthen them for their journey in the present and future. May you find us faithful until the very end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Back to you, Brother Gary. <clears throat>